Baptist 21 is a pastor-led voice for Southern Baptists in the 21st century. The B21 podcast will discuss current issues in the SBC with Southern Baptist church leaders. To check out more resources, visit us at baptist21.com. Hey, before the podcast gets going, I want to let you know about this year's Baptist 21 lunch panel. And that's right. We'll be back at lunch during the Tuesday lunch break of the SBC annual meeting in New Orleans. This year's panelists will include Danny Aiken, Al Moeller, Juan Sanchez. With more panelists to come, seats will be limited. Tickets will be $25 for early signups, and signups will go live next week. And maybe the best news of all, the venue will be right across the street from the meeting room. Uh, and will be, it will include Chick-fil-A. That's right, Christian chicken rather than a cold sandwich. And so you'll want to be there for that. It'll also include books and good conversation. And so make plans to be there. We'll send out signups through our website, through social media, and our email distribution starting again early next week. Uh, be on the lookout for that. Welcome to the Baptist 21 podcast, where we have conversations about what it means to be Baptist in the 21st century. I'm Nate Aiken, and I have with me today a return guest, uh, Baptist historian, uh, teaching pastor, provost at North Greenville, uh, and recording secretary of the Southern Baptist Convention, distinguished recording secretary of the Southern Baptist Convention, Nathan Finn. Nathan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, man. Happy to be back. I'm going to ask you the toughest question up first. Will the Georgia Bulldogs three-peat? Absolutely. Okay. Wasn't very tough for you. No. Yeah, it's going to be. What? That's a softball. <laughs> Man, I remember years ago watching a Georgia-Alabama game with you, and it was like 28 nothing at halftime, and you went home. So. <laughs> I went home, and, you're, uh, and your dad was there, and I think he went upstairs to bed, or went no, over to bed. Dead. He was like, yeah, I'm he, done. He was done. He was done. So things have, things have turned around for us. Well, hey, I've had you on before, so people kind of know you, and you've written on this topic that we want to talk about today, cooperation, confessionalism, and complementarianism. Uh, wrote on this maybe just a couple of weeks ago, yeah. um, coming out of the EC meetings. Uh, so we want to talk through some of that. It's obviously a hot topic in the SBC, uh, important topic in the SBC, and, and particularly with your your uh, expertise as a historian, want to think through some of these topics. So let's just start here. Historically, how has someone sort of been able to be considered Southern Baptist? And by that, we simply probably mean seat messengers to come to the convention. But historically, really beginning in 1845, uh, and we can talk about how it's changed over time, but how was somebody considered to be Southern Baptist and able to cooperate with the convention? So it's looked different at different times in Southern Baptist history. So in 1845, it was really just about being a founding delegate from one of those churches who sent somebody. Right. And they were all uh, basically like-minded churches. They were coming together for the same two or three reasons. And so, uh, you know, there, there was a lot of uh, trust in the room uh, between the churches whenever they came together. Uh, once we had a Southern Baptist Convention, messengers from time to time would uh, come up with various rules about who could and could not be a messenger. Probably uh, the most uh, well-known one was in the 1880s whenever they decided that uh, only men uh, could serve as messengers, and that directly led to the creation of uh, Woman's Missionary Union mm. uh, as an auxiliary uh, to the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, but other than that, uh, there really weren't any requirements to be a cooperating Southern Baptist church until uh, you have the cooperative program. And uh, then at that point, uh, it becomes kind of a pay-to-play uh, sort of yep. model. It, it doesn't catch on immediately in 1925, uh, but it does gradually over the course of about a generation so that by the time we get to about 1950, uh, everybody knows that you can be Southern Baptist and not give to the cooperative program. But if you're 
a cooperating Southern Baptist yeah. church or seating messengers. That means you're giving to uh, the cooperative program. In 1992, uh, we have the first sort of doctrinal or ethical uh, mm. requirement. Uh, at that time, you had two churches that were actually uh, here in metropolitan Raleigh-Durham that, uh, that had taken pro-homosexual positions. They were mm. ordaining uh, men and women uh, to the gospel ministry who were homosexuals. They were uh, performing homosexual unions uh, at that time. There was no legalized homosexual marriage. And so in 1992, Southern Baptists uh, added to the stipulations for cooperation that uh, you could not uh, embrace or endorse homosexuality. And that stood uh, kind of as the status quo until uh, 2015. And uh, 2015, uh, we began to use the language of uh, closely identifying with yep. the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. I'm sure we'll talk about that. Yep. Uh, in a few minutes. And, and, and so since that time, we've also added uh, requirements that you not be a church that embraces racism or mm-hmm. a church uh, that uh, in some way is doing something wrong with sexual abuse. But uh, as it stands right now, those are still the only four areas uh, giving financially, though it's right. defined a little bit broader than the cooperative program now, whatever is right. you know giving to Southern Baptist causes. Right. So you give and you don't be pro-homosexual, yeah. be racist, or uh, or be a context that's abusing people sexually, mm-hmm. and uh, and then whatever it means to closely identify with the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. So those initial churches sort of, uh, they obviously knew each other. There's the, the conflict with the North, but there's this understanding of like, we're Baptist. They may even had, I don't even know if they would have had Baptist in the name back then, but there was at least an understanding of like, we have a similar theology, even though it wasn't even spelled out at all, right? Yeah, so there was definitely a broad theological consensus. There was no denominational confession of faith, and there wouldn't be until 1925. Uh, right. But uh, Timothy George has shown that that all the churches that sent delegates to the original 1845 uh, convention either came from, or excuse me, all the delegates came either from local churches or associations that had embraced some version of uh, the Philadelphia Confession of Faith, or in a couple of cases, I think the New Hampshire Confession of Faith. So they certainly, uh, in the local church or associational level, or both, had some understanding of a theological consensus, but they had the luxury through most of the 19th century, I think, of just assuming that consensus until really you have uh, the advent of the fundamentalist modernist controversies at the turn of the 20th century. And that's when you're really going to start to have people that are departing significantly from that consensus in different ways. Yeah, I want to ask some questions around that in a second. So, I mean, so from my understanding then, when does the Credentials Committee get created? I mean, it's definitely not there in 1845, and it's a pretty recent phenomenon in the SBC, right? It is a recent phenomenon, and I, I think it's 2015. I okay. could be wrong about that. I wish that uh, Amy Whitfield and Jonathan Howe were here. They would they would possibly correct me. Uh, it is in the last decade or so that yeah. the Credentials Committee itself was created uh, so that there was an extra layer of assessing who was and was not a cooperating church. And it's uh, you've made a little bit of allusion to this, but it's we didn't really start moving, removing churches from the SBC until 1992. Oh, yeah. 1992 was the beginning of uh, the Southern Baptist Convention actively removing churches. Before that time— you would have churches that would self-select out, uh, and many of them were self-selecting out because they were more progressive than the mm. Southern Baptist Convention or because 
they were independent fundamentalists and they couldn't walk with the SBC anymore. But 1992 was the beginning of the SBC taking a proactive role and saying we as a convention are not going to cooperate with some churches for some reason. I want to take a broad view and then kind of laser in on Southern Baptist and talk just confessions for a minute, and then we'll get to 1925. So have to answer, have Baptists historically been confessional? Uh, and then you've, again, sort of alluded to this already, but have Southern Baptists been confessional? So zoom out kind of 400 years and then zoom into the SBC. Uh, and then I want to ask a question is, what's the difference between confessional and creedal as well? So this is a way more complicated question than uh, than many of my friends want it to be. Mm. I have one group of friends who want to say, of course, Southern Baptists or Baptists in general, but you know, Southern Baptists have always been confessional. And I have another group of friends that say, no, we've never really been confessional. And the answer is really, what do you mean by confessional? Mm. So again, there have always been Southern Baptist churches that cared very deeply uh, about confessions of faith at various points in Southern Baptist history. Although I do think it is the case that prior to the mid-20th century in local churches, uh, covenants mattered more than confessions. And that's Mm. not just true of Southern Baptists. I think we find that across the Baptist tradition. Uh, However, there have always been churches that valued uh, confessions of faith. And it is certainly the case that a number of our institutions, most famously Southern Seminary with the Abstract of Principles, but not just Southern Seminary, Uh, A number of our seminaries, when they were founded, adopted confessions of faith that were intended to be, by the founding generations, uh, instruments of doctrinal accountability. The Southern Baptist Convention itself, however, did not have a confession of faith that defined the terms of cooperation Hmm. until 1925. But even then, uh, the 1925 confession was more uh, of a here-I-stand moment than it was a moment with teeth. We're in the middle of the fundamentalist modernist controversies, and Southern Baptists wanted to be on the record that we're not modernists Mm. and we're really not fundamentalists, even though there's a lot of overlap doctrinally uh, with the fundamentalists. But there weren't any churches or, or even institutions that were required to affirm the Baptist faith and message in 1925. 1963, uh, no one is required to affirm the 1963 Baptist faith and message. Uh, it, it's really a post-2000 phenomenon that uh, that we've used the confession of faith as a doctrine, uh, as an instrument of doctrinal accountability, and kind of clearly defined what that means. And we've started to have uh, some state conventions and local associations that have had confessional bases of membership. And I think that's kind of where we are right now in the Southern Baptist Convention is figuring out uh, whether we're going to take that step or not, or some step yeah. in between and what that would look like. Uh, in terms of the creedal versus confessional, uh, man, that's really tricky because I think it means different things to different people. Different people yeah. uh, again, we've always valued confessions of faith, but how we've used them, if you will, has looked different at different points in history. Uh, I think what most people mean uh, when they say we're not creedal is that we've never held uh, as a wider movement uh, to some sort of strict subscriptionism where we say you have to sign on the dotted line to be a Southern Baptist or to be a member of this church. Now, in a convention of 50,000 autonomous churches, I'm sure we have a handful of churches that are like that, but that's not normal in Southern Baptist life. Uh, the, The only areas where we've taken that sort of approach has been in our entities uh, and with uh, people who write curricula uh, for LifeWay. Uh, 
so I think you could make a case that we've taken a quote-unquote creedal type approach with that. Uh, if, again, creedal means something like you need to sign on the dotted line and actually believe this. Uh, but but we did that with the full blessing and even uh, admonition of the Southern Baptist Convention to take that place, I mean, to take that step. And so all of us, including myself, uh, who've taken the step of signing those documents has done so with a clear conscience because this is actually what I believe and it right. it doesn't bother me. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, I, sometimes I think the the creedal versus confessional thing is more of a uh, more of a misdirect and and just kind of language in our culture. I think the real question is, hey, we have confessions. How do we use them? Do we use them in uh, ways that are uh, very clearly defining who we are for as many Southern Baptists as possible, or do we use them in a handful of strategic ways for strategic purposes? And, and that's at the heart of the issues that we're trying to navigate right now. Uh, so I want to talk just briefly about 1925, though, you, though you've mentioned it. How So to one, to the idea of confessions and creedalism, the, the framers have about four points at the beginning of that document that are in the preamble that are really good. Uh, so I just recommend people reading the, the, the preamble there. Um, and it actually gives some even historic idea of, hey, Baptists at all times have had a chance to, to write confessions and so forth. The committee that was, it, I'm assuming it was a committee that was formed to write that. And was it, was it viewed sort of how we view, this is going to probably be a little bit minimal on how I ask this, but is it viewed how we kind of view resolutions that this was kind of what this messengers at this time said, or is it a little bit more than that? Certainly less than binding on all the churches, but how was it kind of viewed in that moment? It's a really great question. There was a committee that put it together and uh, EY Mullins at that time, the president of Southern Seminary was the chair of that committee. And uh, it was, I think maybe the best way to answer your question, it was something in between a resolution and the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. So it, it wasn't just this is what these Southern Baptists in this moment in 1925 believe. They really thought it was a consensus statement of what Southern Baptists in general had always believed and ought to believe. So it's, it's a little bit bigger than a resolution. But again, it wasn't binding on anyone. And so they were very cautious to say, you don't have to agree with all of this to be a part of the SBC, but this is what a critical mass of Southern Baptists have always believed, and we think as messengers ought to continue to believe. So again, it was a little bit ambiguous, which is why I think, uh, you know, it's not an accident that one of the precursors to the conservative resurgence was the Baptist Faith and Message Fellowship in the 1970s. And part of what they were arguing is, hey, we have this document. We even revised it about a decade ago. what do we do to make sure that it's more than just a general consensus statement, but it's actually impacting the way that our entities are run and the way that our leaders function? And and then that's going to be directly bearing on the way that we approach the confession post the adoption of the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. Yeah, that's that's really good, really helpful. Um, And and it's built, like at least built to some degree off of New Hampshire? It is. It was uh, in many ways uh, just a revision of New Hampshire with a handful of new articles that were added to address specifically Southern Baptist concerns or new concerns in the 1920s. You've already hit on this a little bit, kind of, kind of said 25 is a here we stand moment when it, as it pertains to the, to the fundamentalist modernist controversy. 63, what's kind of behind that uh, as far as the, the revision in, in 1963? Yeah, so once again, it was the battle over the Bible. So in uh, 1925, it was the battle of the Bible with emphasis on what do we do with evolution and human origins? 
1963, it's the battle of the Bible, but it's more about the historical integrity of the book of Genesis. And so this is in the wake of the Genesis controversy with Ralph Elliott. 1963 is also a here I stand moment, but 1963 is a little bit more complicated. There's a preamble there too. And, uh, and, and, my interpretation, and I'm, I'm sure there'll be lots of disagreement about this, but my interpretation of 1963, they uh, they do remain on the record affirming biblical inerrancy because from 1925, it's always affirmed biblical inerrancy, even though it doesn't use that term. You know, but they add the kind of mushy language of Jesus being the criterion by which we interpret Scripture, which uh, for at least some people allowed them to pit Jesus against other you know, individuals who write or are quoted in the scriptures. And then the uh, the preamble to 1963 comes pretty close to saying, hey, we've adopted this confession, but confessions don't really matter, which, uh, which again, I don't think is what 1925 was saying, and it's definitely not what 2000 was saying. Uh, but, but 1963, also a symbolic gesture, but I, I really do think 1925 was a victory for cooperative conservatism. I think 1963 kicked the can on uh, on the debate between uh, those who were drifting to the left and those who were standing where Baptists had always stood. And because 1963 did kick the can, we had 1979 and everything that came after it. That's fascinating. I was not didn't anticipate you saying that because it feels like I could, I think some could look at our current argument and say, "Are we going to kick the can again?" in order to maintain unity. I want to get to that in a minute, but uh, I know you're not saying that necessarily, uh, but just giving us what was happening in 1963. So fast forward to 2000 is a, in some sense, what's complicated about this whole conversation is people appeal to history, but in some sense, 2000 and 2015 are the kind of historical markers for us as pertains to what we're dis- discussing and debating right now. Because at the 2000 adoption is when we make very clear, at least in 2000 and just directly thereafter, that we are going to be confessional at the cooperation level. Okay, so I've written about this in, back in November at Baptist 21. Uh, by that, we mean the entities are going to be bound to this confession, but not the local churches. Okay, so tell me what happens uh, in, you know, what's behind the revision in 2000. Uh, again, we'll get to 2015 in just a minute, but what changed with the adoption of the BFNM 2000 about 23 years ago? So the 2000 Baptist Faith and Message is uh, what I would call a summary of the theological consensus of post-resurgent Southern Baptists. So we've now become uh, not just thoroughly theologically conservative, because I think as a tradition we always were, but our entities are actually beginning to reflect that now. We've had a string of elected presidents who are convictional conservatives. And so Baptist faith and message in some ways cleans up 1963, so the article on Scripture, much stronger. Uh, addresses some issues that had not been addressed in 1963 for various reasons. Uh, One issue that's addressed that we don't talk about a whole lot is open theism. Well, open theism wasn't really a thing in 1963. It was in the 1990s, so it makes it into the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. Uh, It addresses the uh, the gender role issues, and that had begun in 1998 with an amendment to the Baptist Faith and Message, but the Baptist Faith and Message 2000 incorporates that in Firmly, and so uh, so even though that was a ninety eight amendment, we really now think of it as you know the yeah. two thousand Baptist faith and message. So it clarifies that we were a complementarian uh, convention of churches. So you have those various revisions and and some others. I mean, it it updates the language about the Lord's Day. Uh, prior to that, you could have Im- 
you could have interpreted the Southern Baptist, uh, the Baptist faith and message as affirming kind of a Puritan view of the Sabbath. And uh, mm-hmm. now it, it does not affirm a Puritan view of the Sabbath. And so, again, you have these changes that come with the 2000 Baptist faith and message. And, and I think it's it's the consensus of the resurgence generation and their protégés. And it very clearly addresses uh, the doctrines that Southern Baptists not just cared about in 2000, but felt like it was worth fighting for and going on the record with. The big change is that it wasn't just a symbolic decision. It was a symbolic decision. It's a powerful symbol. But Southern Baptists were on the record that we really do think that the people who teach at our seminaries and serve as our missionaries and write our Sunday school curricula and serve as our elected Trust and appointed you. leaders right. ought to believe this. And, uh, and, and that's been the case. I mean, I'm sure there's been folks who've slid in here and there who didn't, and that's dealt with. But, uh, but you know, 98% of the time, the people who we've hired or appointed or elected over the last 23 years have been people who can say, without crossing their fingers, the 2000 Baptist Faith and Message is an adequate summary of what I believe about the Christian life. So in one sense, we did not become confessional uh, until 2000. Southern Baptist, and at that point, it was confessional just to the entities, not to the local churches. You're working really hard to get me with uh, all the well, all the all the direct messages and text messages. That are gonna come. <laughs> no, again, Nate, I think it, I think it depends on what we mean by confessional. Sure. We had lots of local churches that were confessional. However, it is the case that it's been since the 2000 Baptist Faith and Message that we have become confessional in the sense of our national terms of cooperation. And what I would argue is that over the last 20 years, as we've had a generation of seminary students and college students who've been taught all about how confessional Southern Baptists are, and as we've had an increase in the number of uh, predominantly Reformed Southern Baptists who care very much about confessions and have since the 1960s, and uh, in many ways poured it in a Presbyterian view of confession in the 1960s into the Baptist movement. And and have had that effect in Southern Baptist life. Uh, as you've had various fights happen in local areas over women in ministry or charismatic gifts or, or whatever that's led to a tightening of confessional boundaries in this association or that association, that all of that kind of comes together. And, and we, we read our current debates about how we should use confessions not only back into 2000, but we read it back into 1963 and 1925. And all I'm asking as a historian is that we say it's meant different times. It's meant different things in different places because it has, in fact, meant different things in different places. So the burden today is to say, who do we want to be? We know we've been in several different places, but with our particular challenges and opportunities in the year of our Lord, 2023 or 2024, 2025, whenever it is in the next few years, we need to really determine what are our boundaries and and how are we using and how are we not using the Baptist Faith and Message 2000 and what does that mean for the nature of our cooperation as Southern Baptists? Good. Yeah. We called called to steward our moment. So let's fast forward to 2015 because that is really the reason we have to even have this discussion because in 2015, they add to Article 3.1 that churches must have a faith and practice that closely identifies with our convention's adopted statement of faith. Yeah. Okay? So we we have to deal with that. What 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 was behind that in 2015? So I may have some follow-up questions to that, but why why did we add that in 2015? So I'm not 100% sure. So that was driven by the executive committee. Uh, I have a theory 
about it, but uh, but I'm open to correction. So again, I'll, I'll quote Amy and Jonathan. If y'all are listening to this, y'all can correct me in okay. SBC this week uh, after this comes out. But as best as I can tell, uh, we were having some debates about female pastors in some places in the SBC, and we were having further debates in some places about what it meant to affirm homosexuality. It was easy when it was ordaining homosexuals or performing homosexual unions. But uh, what about the church in Texas that's just using pictures of homosexual couples in their uh, church directory? You know, uh, what about the uh, the practicing homosexual who's a Sunday school teacher? And so those sort of things were in the air. And I think, as best I can tell, the uh, the executive committee was wrestling with uh, what does it mean to add some teeth to the confession with our cooperation. Uh, but not make it so narrow that we're cutting out people who have honest differences of opinions about stuff that conservative Southern Baptists always debate around the water cooler. You know, so again, with with homosexuality, with women in ministry, uh, we have a consensus on that. We have outliers, but we have a consensus. So we're debating the application of those principles. I think when we're actually debating the principles, they didn't want to they didn't want to unite about uh, you know the millennium. You know, they didn't want to tighten up the extent of the atonement. They didn't want to tighten up uh, those sorts of questions. And so I think for that reason, uh, that leads to that conversation in 2015. Closely identifies. You know, we sort of kind of try, try to explain to guys, uh, particularly when we first started Baptist 21, that, you know, all, all you had to do to be Southern Baptist really until, you know, 90 and then now We've added um, racism and sexual abuse, but all you had to do was give money and not ordain homosexuals, and that's all it meant to be Southern Baptist. You, I have to have in the back of my mind, like wondering if that was embarrassing to us, and so we thought, hey, we need to be a little bit more tight than just you can give money. In, in some sense, you could be a pedo Baptist egalitarian and be a Southern Baptist church. Uh, and so I wonder if that was in the back of the mind of the EC in 2015. I don't know. It may have been. I will tell you that I told Baptist history classes before 2015 that as long as you gave money and you were not pro-homosexual, you could sprinkle babies and have women pastors and possibly be Southern Baptist. You'd probably get kicked out of your association for both of those things, but there was no guarantee that you were going to get kicked out of the Southern Baptist Convention. Yeah. And change, again, so 2015 uh, is, is, a, is a watershed moment. And it does raise the question if there needs to be lines somewhere and then and then where those lines need to be and, and those boundaries need to be. Um, so I, I want to ask a question about that, and then I want to move a little bit to complementarianism. But do you think so the question is now, are we going to define what closely identifies means? So we have obviously we have moves to try to actually add uh, another prohibitive uh, clause in the ones right alongside of. Uh, not endorsing homosexuality, uh, racism, or sexual abuse. Um, but then we have some who are pushing back against that, and I think rightfully so. But then why uh, are we going to actually identify, are we actually going to define closely identifies, and how would that actually look? So I don't know how it's actually going to look. Um, I think we need to define it. I yeah. think it's a— I don't know if we have a choice. Yeah, we have to I don't take think it we have out a choice. It. I, yeah. think it, I think it's a looming question. I think there are people who are— uh, very desirous on all perspectives for us to have some clarity on this issue. And so it is my hope that uh, as soon as this summer, certainly within the next couple of years, that uh, that messengers do clarify this so we at least know who we are as we're moving forward. Yeah. I, I think we uh, we owe that to our churches 
for messengers to come together and to clarify that. Yep. All right. Let's transition a little bit then to to what's raised the issue, which is kind of complementarianism. Um, let me ask it like this. Again, I just want your historical perspective. Uh, have Baptists, and then again, in particular, Southern Baptists, uh, been divided on who can be a pastor? That's a broad question, but have we been divided on that topic? I don't know that we've ever been really divided on that topic. What I would say is there's always been uh, some diversity on that question, uh, but not as not as much about gender. I mean, you can certainly, throughout Baptist history, there have been female preachers and female exhorters. Uh, it is a very recent phenomenon to actually have female pastors. Uh, but you have other types of debates as well. You know, should you ordain anybody? Not just should you ordain women. Should you ordain anybody? Right. You know, Baptists have debated that. Uh, you've had some Baptists in some places that that didn't want pastors at all. They just wanted lay exhorters. And so there's definitely some diversity in the tradition. But our consensus has definitely been um, a male eldership, if you will, until very, very recently. And I still think that's our consensus. I just think that there's more division now than there was two generations ago. And, uh, and of course, that's why we're in this situation now is, uh, you know, what should we what should we do when it comes to uh, gender and the eldership? And does that apply only to senior or solo pastors, or does it apply to everyone who has uh, the title of pastor? And, uh, and even the question of, is there a difference between people who are uh, using particular gifts that we traditionally identify with the pastor, especially the gift of public preaching and teaching mixed assemblies, and those who hold the office of elder or pastor. And I think that that's all the mushy stuff that we're trying to wrestle through right now. And, uh, and, and my very strong suspicion is that our churches are far more diverse than the strictest complementarians want us to be, but we are far more complementarian than those who want us to be something else wish we were. Uh, historically, this is, again, this has come up. This is, seems to be a recent argument, but I could be missing something. Have Baptists divided up uh, the office of the elder overseer pastor from the gift of being a pastor or the gift of pastoring? Maybe I should ask it like that. Uh, so obviously there's part of the push that's raised this question is some saying uh, women can be pastors but not elders. Have we historically divided up a uh, pastor from uh, the office of pastor and called it a gift? Yes and no. Um, I want to confess that I have not studied this exhaustively, so I am open to correction and no doubt will receive some. <laughs> but uh, there is definitely a tradition in Baptist life that you can find in the 1689 Confession, uh, that you can find in many local associations uh, that I've seen in my own lifetime where we definitely say there are some people that we set apart for the gifts of public exhortation who are not pastors. Sometimes they have other titles. Sometimes they might be evangelists or they might be missionaries. Sometimes they are old-fashioned lay preachers, and we have a, a deep tradition in Baptist life of old-fashioned lay preachers. Um, so we definitely have half people who have used those gifts, and at times in various ways, whether it was in a confession of faith or whether it's just in our practices of licensing and ordination have recognized that. 
what I don't know is that we have a fully developed theology of that. And so now you have some folks, especially in social media, who I think are wanting to make a strong case for a distinction and then to really build off of that to further make the case that we should have women who are uh, teaching and preaching before mixed assemblies uh, and doing pastor-like things who are not pastor. Um, I think they're probably extending that further than it has been extended historically because, again, Mm -hmm. our consensus has always been complementarian. But it is true that we've not always tied gifts and office narrowly together, and and there's a long tradition of people uh, who are preachers and teachers but not pastors in Southern Baptist life. And so, again, it's it's always more complicated than the loudest voices on Twitter want it to be. You know, Second, uh, Second London uses the term pastor. New Hampshire uses the term pastor. Uh, but then you got the abstract and BFNM 25 use, el- uh, use elder instead of pastor. Uh, and then we change it in 1963 to use the term pastor. So it, it does seem that we have viewed pastor as an office, even in our confessions uh, going back. And so in some sense, this does feel like a divergence of how we have historically understood the office of pastor, elder, overseer to be the same, uh, same synonymous terms for the same office. Yeah, most Baptists have seen pastor, elder, and overseer as same terms for the same office. There's always been a small number of Baptist churches and at various times that have uh, made a distinction. But even then, it's been more a distinction between ruling elders and, and preaching or teaching pastors. So uh, think a Presbyterian-type model without a presbytery, uh, but a local church Presbyterian polity. But even that's not been common, uh, and, and it's probably more common today than it's been at any other time in Baptist history. I, and I wonder if you've done much study on this. It, it would be fascinating. You know, we we use the term pastor, even though as a noun form, it's used one time in the New Testament. Uh, but historically, we've used elder, which is used far more often. Yeah. When did we kind of shift from the language of elder predominantly to the to the language of pastor? And do you do you know why even what was behind that? I don't know what's behind it, um, and I'm sure that there are others that have a better answer for it. I can tell you generally when it happened, and but it, it, there's not like one date we can point to and say, here's when the vote was taken. But I think if you go back and you look at the minutes of especially associations, I think this is where you see it most clearly, there's this gradual transition from about the time of the Civil War to about World War II. So you're talking mm. two clear generations wow. where less and less you see the language of uh, – Elder Aiken stands up and says so-and-so at the confession, and it becomes, you know, Pastor Aiken or whatever. So by the time we're into the 20th century, pastor is far more common, and an elder is really just a term you find in some documents, but it's not being used on a regular basis. But even then, I still think it was the case that there was a baseline understanding that elders, pastors, and overseers are different words for the same position uh, yeah. Among most Baptists in most places, yeah, it seems to be the primary function of what Paul tells the Ephesian elders to do, and then t- and then Peter later says the same thing uh, in First Peter five. All right, I want to know kind of just your thoughts on where do we go from here. We've already talked about probably at some point we're going to you know define what closely identifies mean, uh, what closely identifies means, um, but kind of where do we go from here? I'm thinking through even just if you were speaking to somebody who's kind of very much like, hey, we need to go all in confessional. What kind of counsel would you have for them? Or for those who are saying we should just keep the tent really, really broad and not have confessions. Again, there's we, we think there's got to be some kind of boundary. So if you could just put your kind of um, teaching pastor hat on, uh, talk to both groups and just try to give some counsel about 
hey, let's how do we stay unified and also take these things seriously? For those who really don't want confessions to be a thing that's taken seriously, uh, or or maybe a different way to say that, uh, a confession with any force behind it in Southern Baptist life, what I would say to them is I think that ship has sailed. I think conservative Southern Baptists have made very clear that while we're not all in exactly the same place with how we want to apply it, and that's why we're having the debates today, confessions matter more for Southern Baptists now than they did before. And uh, it seems to me like that is only going to increase. And so uh, I would expect us in various ways, though I'm not going to predict how because I have no idea, um, I would expect us to be somewhat more confessional and not less confessional 10 years from now than we are today. What I would say to those who are arguing for a very, very tight consensus and who get nervous about uh, every Southern Baptist pastor who has a minority opinion about something, we need to be careful that we don't tighten our parameters so much that we cease to be cooperative or that we begin policing people on uh, the sorts of secondary and tertiary issues that we've always debated or that we've historically said don't matter very much. Now, I want to be very clear. I'm not talking about gender roles. We're on the record where we stand with gender roles. We're debating now how best to apply our principles, and uh, and it is a lively debate. Um, so I'm not talking about that. I think we're on the record on that. But I just want to be clear that I want those folks to be clear that we are not uh, going to become the sort of convention that gets so narrow that uh, that we cease to be a big tent. Now, I'm not going to pretend like I know exactly what that looks like. How do we become both somewhat more confessional and continue to be as big a tent as we can with integrity? I don't know what that looks like. I think the details have to be worked out. But I hope that's the posture that's guiding us as we try to work through the details. Um, I said this to you yesterday in a conversation. I've said this to a number of people in recent weeks. I said this to the executive committee in our February meeting. I want us to be able with a clear conscience to break fellowship with every single church that is not with us doctrinally and will not be with us doctrinally. But I don't want to break fellowship with a single church that is with us doctrinally but uses different language or is just kind of pragmatic and sloppy but teachable. And I think we need to navigate this very, very carefully in the coming days. I mentioned you wrote about this uh, at Baptist Press, the first person just called cooperation, confessionalism, and, and complementarianism. I would recommend that. Uh, he, Dr. Finn unpacks some of that. Uh, obviously, these, these questions will be taken up uh, in New Orleans in June, so people need to make plans to be there. Uh, we'll have our usual Baptist 21 panel, and I'm sure questions like this will come up uh, both now and in the coming months and in and June uh, any final thoughts, words as we kind of sign off? I know there's a lot more we could dive into, and this is a complicated, uh, in some sense, but the two things we're talking about are two separate issues. Cooperation and confessionalism is one issue. Complementarianism is another. Absolutely. But they are, they're bleeding into each other because of the nature of the, of the conversations and debates right now. But any, any final words and thoughts for Southern Baptists? The currency of the Southern Baptist Convention is trust. 
we fund our Great Commission efforts primarily through the cooperative program, and we have a confession of faith, but the, cons- the currency of Southern Baptist cooperation is trust. And my prayer and hope for the SBC is that whatever steps we take in the coming days build trust and increase that currency among Southern Baptists. Doc, thanks so much for taking time to be on. I always appreciate your perspective on these things. Thanks, man. I appreciate the invitation. Thank you guys for listening to the Baptist Wing One podcast. Thank you for listening to the Baptist 21 podcast. To learn more about us, visit us at our website, baptist21.com. Also, please be sure to subscribe, rate, review, and share this podcast with others. It would really help us out. If you ever have thoughts or ideas for future interviews, please reach out to us at our email, baptist21 at gmail.com. Again, thanks for listening to the podcast.